Welcome to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. The podcast that covers all things about humans, technology, technology. and particularly the bit in between. Welcome to this episode. Today we are talking about the workplace and particularly it's fitness for purpose. And before we meet today's guest, a quick reminder that you can help others find this content by commenting on it and sharing this content or whatever platform you're using. It helps others find it and broadens the discussion about the application of human factors. Today's office can look and sound fairly common and generic, really, no matter who you work for. Um, desks are desks, monitors are monitors and keyboards are keyboards, and we all have to do our annual DSE assessment. Um, but what about these looks and sounds if they're not the same for you? What else if you have a sight and hearing issue? How can we do things differently so we can provide the best working environment for these people? So today we're joined by Dan Williams from Visualize Training Consultancy based in Cardiff and especially promoting and enabling inclusion, accessibility and equality for people living with visual impairment, hearing loss and other forms of disability. So without further ado, Dan, welcome to the podcast and thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Barry. It's a pleasure um, to be part of the podcast today. And um, that was a great introduction. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's some people get to know a bit more about you. I mean, we know that you've, um, you know, you've done webinars and, and stuff for the CIHF uh, before and, and things like that. But um, what is your current role? Tell us a bit more about what you do on a day to day basis. Yeah, so I'm the director of visualized training and consultancy, and I work with employers, uh, occupational health providers and HR professionals to get people um, back back to work if they've got a visual or hearing loss, or also retain work if they've got a visual or hearing loss. Um, but I also do a lot of awareness training to organizations around vision and hearing loss um, to make the workplace a better place and to, in, in, to promote sort of inclusion within the workplace from an employee perspective, but also a customer service perspective as well. That's really cool. So how did you get involved in that in the first place? Well, how, what was the, uh, uh, the, the lightning bolt moment for you? Um, I suppose for me, I was, so I was diagnosed at the age of eight with a hereditary condition called retinitis pigmentosa, which is a gradual loss of vision. Mm -hmm. um, and I sort of, as I got, got older and I realized that I, my job, I wanted to be a police officer. Um, yeah. but I realized that I couldn't be a police officer because I would be a, a rubbish police officer trying to catch criminals and not being able to chase them. <laughs> so uh, uh, then I sort of realized that I had to change my my outlook on life. Um, and when I was about 16, 17, all my friends started to be able to drive and they were looking at careers. And I sort of thought, yeah, I'm going to be in the police. That's what I'm going to do. Um, and then I realized that's not going to be possible for me. So I had to really take take check and take sort of look at my what my career was going to be like. Um, I then went to college, a specialist. I went to mainstream school. I then went to college um, in Hereford, which was a rural national college for the blind. And I met some inspirational people, um, never met a blind person before, and sort of thought that I was the only one in the world, um, quite honestly. And when I went there, it made me realize that there's lots of people out there that have visual impairment, and um, but they were still cracking on and doing things and um, not letting their disability affect them or stop them. So um, that really inspired me to... Basically, um, it helped me. Well, first of all, it helped me with my mental health because I realized I wasn't the only but only one. I realized that there was opportunity. I realized that I could still do do things. I just have to see. I'm just my realize I'm just seeing in a different way. So that was really important for me. 
Um, I had counseling and I had therapy, but the most important thing was to meet other people. Um, and so then I was so inspired that I done my business business course. I done sociology and I done health and social care. Um, and I then went on to university to study as a rehabilitation worker for people with visual impairment. Um, and that's teaching people how to cook again, how to clean again, how to um, get out and about again using a, a long cane. And that job would have, so it's effectively like an occupational therapist, but for people with visual impairment. But I didn't want to go into um, working in local authority because there was a lot of red tape. Okay. Um, I was, I've always been quite entrepreneurial. Um, and so I thought, let me set up my own business. Because when I was at that college, I realized there was a huge lack of awareness around visual impairment. Um, so I set up my own business and I've never looked back since. I'm nearly in my ninth year anniversary in April. Um, and I started off doing a lot of awareness training to sort of bus companies, hotels around visual impairment. Um, and ever since then, it's sort of grown into different sort of different aspects, really. Um, I done then I started doing access to work assessments for for um, for a couple of years for them. Um, and now we we do um, other assessments in hearing loss as well. People kept asking me, can you do hearing as well? So we've now grown our team to have um, hearing specialists as well. And I suppose what, what I'm really proud about is the team that I have, and there's seven of us on the team, and we've all got lived experience of either visual impairment or hearing loss. And I think that's really, really important, especially when carrying out an assessment, because people don't, they think they're on their, their own in the workplace, because there may not be anyone that looks like them. Um, but once you sort of do the assessment and you recommend lots of different solutions and you tell them about things that they're unaware of, they realize that they're not the only ones. Um, and they also realize that they're not even the only ones in their organization because, you know, you go, you might have gone to that same organization a few times and you've got a few people maybe upstairs or downstairs um, who have a visual or hearing uh, loss as well. That's really uh, fascinating because you've basically taken um, what life gave you um, mm. in that respect and really um, empowered not only yourself, but you're empowering other people to be able to do what um basically what we wouldn't expect anybody to do and to show them that it's uh um that it that it's open for them but it must be really good for employers as well um because it's it shows that how much value you can get out of people if you just give them the right um the right setup so i guess to get into that we have workplace assessments and i think probably most people are familiar with a, you know, a workplace assessment um, of some description. Um, but just in case we're not, before we get into the specifics around it, can you just describe what a workplace assessment is and why it's important? Yeah, so a workplace assessment um, in my world is is to look at what difficulty somebody's having and recommend solutions um, so that they can continue working or have some adaptations or reasonable adjustments for them to to make their job easier effectively um so that's sort of in a nutshell that's what it is and i think for, from my perspective we're looking at what difficulties um they're having not just in the workplace but at home as well because when it starts at you know can you do your shopping can you do this what what referrals do we need to make so that we can enable you to do that and also have you had emotional support to deal with your your loss of either vision or hearing because people go through a loss the same way that you go through a bereavement you go through grief you go through loss but you can't get to acceptance until you've had some type of therapy or some type of input from other people that have gone through a similar experience. So you really have to take a um, 
I guess, a, a whole a, a holistic approach to this, then you can't just sort of say, well, there's, you know, there's a special keyboard or a mouse like we could do with, with other things. You really have to um, look at that, look at the whole package. Um, so I guess to talk about the uh, the specifics around this, then what, what sort of interventions um, or what the, ch- really what, ch- I mean, without being obvious, um but what are the challenges around vision or hearing loss so somebody like myself who um who who can't necessarily appreciate uh the thing the things what what sort of things would would i not be thinking about i think the first thing to to realize is that you know five percent of people who are registered blind see nothing at all so that is that 95 percent of people that are registered blind will see something and that might be shapes shadows it might be peripheral vision, so they've got the vision at the side, but not in the center, or they've got tunnel vision, for example, so not the peripheral vision at the side. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so various different eye conditions will affect various different people's level of vision. Um, and someone who's maybe had a stroke may only have, they may have a hemanopia, so they may only see, for example, on one side rather than on the other side. Um, so I think. It's very variable. And the same with hearing loss. You know, you may get people that are born deaf, capital D deaf, um, and they may use sign language, for example. And to the other end, you may get someone that's just got mild hearing loss or tinnitus that is impacting them in the workplace, but they still need some level of of adjustments. And those adjustments might seem very minor, um, but they they are they may be really, really important to that individual. Um, So yeah so um what sort of then uh, if if you're lo- looking in the workplace and i'd like to come back and um talk about the home again in a second yeah um what sort of rectivate rectif- uh, rectifications accommodations could we be talking about how do how do we make um how do how can we make the workplace easier i know i guess it will depend on person to person won't it but yeah uh, do, do we have any large handful i guess solutions Oh. Yeah, I think so. So, you know, for example, um, we might be recommending things like a, a a large print keyboard where the the letters are bigger on the keyboard or a larger screen, for example, or a monitor arm so someone can bring the screen closer to their face so they're not bending forward. One of the biggest things I find is that people bend forward to the screen to see the screen um, because they're not seeing properly, but the amount of people that are not even aware that they're not seeing properly, but do that anyway. Right. So, okay. Well, you know, from an ergonomic perspective, a lot of people bend forward to the screen. They've probably never been for an eye test, but they just they just bend subconsciously to the screen, and they never necessarily think that they're bending to the screen because they're not seeing properly. They just think they're bending forward to the screen. So the first question I would be asking in that situation is, have you been for an eye test? When was the last time you went for an eye test? Because you don't generally bend into the screen unless you're not seeing properly. Okay. I think there needs to be that connection with ergonomics and vision, very, very important. And I think from an ergonomic perspective, that question should be asked all the time. You know, when was the last time you went for your eye test? Because if you've got a gradual loss of vision, you don't necessarily know that you're losing your sight. And it's quite scary, the amount of people that I am aware of that continue to thrive and they're not seeing properly, or they didn't realize they had a sight problem until they knocked over somebody, or they didn't know they had a sight problem until they bashed into the wall. Yeah. Uh, 
because people don't necessarily 28% of the population don't bother going for eye tests and employers don't generally push eye tests as as good as they should or could um so I slightly digress there, but um, I just wanted to get that point across. <laughs> no, it's a really good point because I mean, what we found with um, my younger daughter is that she was, um, you know, she loved reading and that, and you could sort of see like the book was going closer and closer and and all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, but it wasn't until, but she she never complained about not being able to to see properly and things like that. But when she uh, went to um, when we sort of said, oh, well, maybe you should go for an eye test. Um, it wasn't wasn't something that we'd push right away, but we went along. She then got glasses and turns out she had really bad eyesight. Um, yeah. And that moment of when she put the glasses on, when she got the glasses and put them on, it's like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be seeing. And it's the, you you don't know what you don't have until you, until you kind of see, I guess, the solution. So, um, and then it's, like you say, I guess the, responsibility on us as employers uh to be able to, t- to turn around and say it's not just you know how well are you feeling today but you know have you had a, a hearing test sight test and, mm. and sort of things just it's all preventative isn't it yeah and we know prevention is better than cure as well so you know 50 percent of sight loss for example is avoidable um and that can be avoidable in a number of ways for example wearing sunglasses um Hearing loss again is avoidable. Not wearing, not putting headphones up to maximum volume. Um, you know, not wearing contact lenses in the swimming pool or the shower. You know, basic things that could make a, a massive difference. But it's that eye health promotion isn't really being done so much. Um, but also, we rec- in terms of recommendations, we might recommend larger screen, but we are also recommend a smaller screen. The amount of times I go into employers and they have they someone has a visual impairment and they recommend a massive screen. Mm. Obviously, a massive screen from an ergonomic perspective isn't the best solution all the time because then you get the head, you get people moving their head from left to right and they get a bad neck, they get bad back, et cetera, et cetera. And it can sometimes cause more problems. Um, But if somebody's only got a reduced peripheral vision of field, for example, there's no point in getting them a massive screen because they can only see at this level anyway. Right. Depends on the someone's level of vision. Whereas if someone's got reduced um, central vision, so the centre of the vision, and they're only using their peripheral vision at the side, then it makes more sense to have a larger screen. So it's all about taking all that into into account when rec- making recommendations. And I've seen assessments where people have been recommended the wrong equipment, and it's actually ended up in them having more MSK issues than than actually they they didn't they didn't need in the first place. Um, so that's really, really important, I think, to to highlight to the listeners today that, you know, bigger is not always better when it comes to visual impairment, especially. And then in terms of hearing loss, we will be recommending things like if someone has tinnitus, then we might be recommending tinnitus management therapy um, to help people manage the the, the tinnitus. Mm-hmm. It might, might be recommending Phonak Roger equipment, which is sort of listening equipment that can attach to the hearing aids um, and amplify sound. Um, we might be recommending sort of louder um, headphones so that people can hear better or that can attach to their hearing aids. Um, we might be recommending some deaf awareness training or some visual impairment awareness training for the colleagues that are working with that specific colleague to make them more aware of how to support them in the workplace. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very and, and we might be then recommending that somebody has, for example, um, the fire service come to their home Um because they might need a vibrating pillow or they might need a flashing um, alarm at home 
um, to know if there's a fire, for example, because again, if there's a fire at home, how do they know it? How do they know the alarm's going off? Um, and the same in the workplace, things like this, but again, making a huge difference to people's, their home life and their work life. So it's very, very holistic. We look at what difficulties the person's having at home, at work, social life. Um, you know, I've had people confide in me about they're in domestic violent relationships, so I might have to refer them for um, domestic violence support, et cetera, et cetera. The list goes on. Mm. You know, I sort of see myself as a, a workplace social worker when it comes to vision and hearing, not just a workplace assessor, you know, because I, at the end of the day, I'm dealing with a person that's got difficulties in in their life and I need to, I, I feel like I need to help them in whatever way I can. And a lot of the professionals that these people are seeing along their journeys, it might be they see a GP, then an ophthalmologist or an audiologist or an optometrist. You would think that they would have referred them somewhere along that process. But unfortunately, that doesn't generally happen because a lot of people slip through the net. So I sometimes will pick up people and say, why haven't you been referred here or here or here? Mm. Well, um, so, yeah, I think and I think um, the other the other piece of work that I do is a lot of work with income protection insurers. Um, so when people are off work for a long period of time, the insurer is paying their salary. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, historically, a lot of insurers were sort of if somebody had a visual impairment and the ophthalmologist said they're registered blind, then the insurer would just pay out the claim. But I'm um, more and more people, more and more insurers are coming to us now and saying we want to get these people back into work. We don't want just because you have a visual impairment, you shouldn't need to just be claiming income protection. And most people want to they want to work. Most people don't just want to claim income protection because, you know, they've been working for 20, 30 years. They don't necessarily want to be signed off for another 30 years until they retire because mm -hmm. they have all those skills to give to their employer. And if they're just sat at home doing nothing, then it increases their mental health as well. So it's really, really important to uh, um, acknowledge that as well, really. And it's, is it because what you're really assessing them for is, is quite is quite personal, isn't it? You're, yeah. You maybe have, have delivered um, almost a revelation to them in many ways. And so yeah. it's quite close. Therefore, you can I can really appreciate why then they would feel they can open to open up to you about. Yeah other yeah. things as well um yeah. so again it feeds into that that holistic service you you describe mm -hmm. and you can see it's not just uh go in do this get out again do the next job you must get really sort of involved um for want of better expression yeah and i think um having a visual impairment when i do because i do the visual ones and my colleagues do the hearing one but when I having a visual impairment or a hearing loss, what, when people realize that you've got that as well, they are, naturally seem to open up more to you because they sort of feel like you understand it because you're coming from their perspective. Even though I'm never going to understand how everybody feels, I just have an, a more empathetic approach. I understand where they're coming from. Um, so that's really, really, I think, important. And, you know, the amount of people that you're the first person that they've really opened up to, the amount of the amount of assessments that I've done where it turns into a crying, crying session, you know, it might, and my assessment might only, it might be two hours, three hours, you know, it takes mm -hmm. how long it will take because you've got a person there that needs support. And that might be the only time that they've ever had support from you. Um, so that's sort of where, where I stand on, on the quality of assessment, really. It's about having a quality assessment, making sure the person gets what they need Um and then on the other side, making sure that the employer implements the adjustments. And sometimes that's a difficulty because 
you don't have control over what the employer then goes to do with your report. Mm -hmm. okay. That report might sit on the HR manager's desk or a line manager's desk for a year, or it might sit on there for a week and you might get some people that are more proactive than others in, in implementing the adjustments. So that's sometimes where I think the workplace adjustment process can fall down. Right. Okay. I guess it's the um, kicking people to, uh, to, to, <laughs> to implement what goes on. You, yeah. Um, obviously we've, um, we've gone through COVID, um, and, and every, all the joys that that had to offer. Um, how did that change how you work? Because I guess there's two aspects. One is, you know, you, you know, the, the restrictions that were in place meant getting close to people, uh, made it difficult, but also we were doing more, we were working at working from home. Um, mm. so did you, what were the differences that you saw in that respect? Um, I think we, to be honest, I never thought that we could do an assessment online. Mm. So it's changed changed my sort of mindset slightly that we can do an assessment online. We can do an assessment over the phone. And I always thought that it was never going to be possible. Um, I think the only thing that might have changed slightly is that you don't get the human contact or the emotional connection as much, I think, if you're not face to face with somebody. Yeah open up more to you emotionally when you're in the same room as them um so i would say that's probably the biggest thing in terms of and i think you can you can see things a bit better from like the body language and you know people will tell you oh no i'm fine i'm okay i'm fine um but actually you know that if you were there it would probably be easier to see that they're about to break down right now because you've just sort of how you brought everything to the surface of what mm. they're experiencing in their grief process um so i think that that's probably the biggest thing but in terms of doing the assessment i think to most of the time you know um we we we, we, we split it between hybrids so sometimes we'll do assessments face to face sometimes we'll do them online depending on the requirement but i think it's made me realize that um we can do a lot more and be more efficient in terms of time but also um from my own perspective of traveling around the UK, you know, I was getting knackered myself, you know, because it is tiring traveling around doing assessments um, all week. And I think it was a lot, I, my lifestyle is a lot better now from a work-life balance perspective, which right. I think is really important as a director running your own business as well. No, that's, um, yeah, I, I I should do a lot better at that than I do. Um, <laughs> what did you find in terms of when you would, so not just conducting the assessments, but in terms of, I guess, the the accommodations and solutions you were offering. Um, because uh, when we've talked to people around being home working, you know, there was there was some what I could only consider ridiculous setups where people were working off ironing boards, yeah. uh, work. I mean, even working off the dining room table for months mm. and months and months on end um, yeah. is, is not a solution. Mm. Um, so what sort of... Uh, how easy or, or how difficult was it for you to get solutions into the home as opposed to the office? I think uh, it depended on the on, on the employer, but I think some some employers were taking ownership of it and some some weren't. I think some employers were saying, "Well, it's your responsibility. You know, we'll we'll send you the equipment, for example, but you, you've got to set it up yourself." And I think again, for some people, especially on the vision side. It, that was difficult, especially if they're living on their own, for example, to read the instructions, et cetera, to pull it out of the box, to fit it up. Yeah. There's an expectation that everybody can do can do that. You know, whether it's a desk, for example, everyone can set up a desk. 
well, not everybody can. I don't think that's just from a visual impairment, but I think that's just generally not everybody can do X, Y, and Z. So um, I think there was an assumption that everybody could do it and some people needed that additional support or additional help. And there was a lack of that, I would say. Um, but but what I what I have seen more and more is that the people are required more and more now to go back into the office. And that's great. But then equally on the flip side, some people are also working from home. And I think more and more people with disabilities, some people are working from home because um, the employer thinks it would be easier for them. So they don't, wouldn't have to commute to the office. But then equally on the flip side, they then miss out on the social sort of um, contact with with colleagues as well. So you, it's trying to get that balance. And I think it's really important to ask the employee what, what would work better for them rather than assume that maybe just because they have a disability, it's going to be easier for them to work from home. No, that makes an, an awful lot of sense because, and I guess not only is everybody's individual circumstance different, but everybody's home is different as well. It's uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but that reflectiveness around employee employers is, I think, really, um, it's really interesting because everyone's got every employee's got different challenges. Mm. But what if you could wave the magic wand um, and get all employers to to behave in the way that you would wish. Um, mm. What would what would that look like? What can employers be doing differently to what they're doing now? Um, I think um, I think to have an assessment, um, to have a proper specialist assessment, um, because I have seen assessments where you know people have been. People, every assessor has a, a specific skill set, yeah? So if you come from an ergonomics background and that's what you specialize in, then you will generally be good at that, right? Um, I w- I'm not great at ergonomics, so I, I don't generally do, I wouldn't do an ergonomic assessment. I will refer that out to somebody that I know that can do that. Yeah. Um, so I think, but but on the flip side, I've, I've seen assessments for vision and hearing where they've been recommending like, very inappropriate recommendations for example um dyslexia software and the person doesn't have dyslexia um they have a visual impairment for example right Um, and you know like other other things like a like a really large screen when they're only seeing a small amount anyway so there's i think it's really important to get a specialist assessment and then i think it's really important to sit down with the employee and the and the line manager and the HR team and come up with an implementation plan to to get those adjustments in place quickly in a in a reasonable time frame. Um, and you know, pay just pay for the pay for the adjustments and get that person on their feet quickly. Because the amount of employers that will drag the whole process out when it doesn't really need to be, yeah. you know, who's paying for this, who's paying for that? Oh, you can pay for this and you can pay for that. Um, and in the meantime, that employee is struggling then for another month and another month and another month goes on and their mental health then dwindles and then they get signed off sick because they can't cope anymore with the stress of all of this managers talking about them. And then they feel like, oh, who's going to, and then the employee thinks, oh, who's going to, I'm really, you know, I don't want my employer to pay for this because this piece of equipment's too expensive. And, and then they feel that that gets them feeling down as well so I think it's really really important to just 
you know, let's be fair, if you're a multi-million pound company, um, to pay a couple of a grand or two grand on a piece, a couple of pieces of equipment to get somebody back on their feet, what what's the big deal, really? I mean, you know, you can get that done pretty quickly. Mm. Uh, so it 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 doesn't make sense to me sometimes the the drawn out processes that some employers will do. And then on the flip side, you've got employers that will they'll have the assessment, they'll get everything in place within a matter of weeks, you know, yeah. and it person's then rocking and rolling and on their feet and that's that's what I call a really inclusive employer and I think that to me should be the gold standard of where we should be working to and they don't make the individual feel like they're sort of um a problem like oh you know Barry you're gonna you're gonna I'm gonna have to spend loads of money on you you're causing me a problem you know this piece of equipment this amount of money because that that has a massive impact on the individual Mm. you know has a massive impact because then they feel less than a less than you know they feel like a second class citizen and 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 something and and like they shouldn't need to feel like that you know at the end of the day sight loss or hearing loss could happen to any person at any point in their life at the, at the end of the day if that person needs help and support just give them the help and support they need don't make it a bigger issue than it needs to be you know if you've got a some money into the pot then just just you know and I'm talking about companies that can afford this you know and and I think if you really value your employees I mean I'm a small company and if I value my employees I'll pay for whatever they need because you know I don't have oozes of money but at the end of the day if I need to get someone rocking and rolling and back on their feet and I value my employee then I'm going to do it it just it's just morally right I think sometimes we think too much about the law right Sometimes people just need to take a rain check and think, what's morally right here? Like, what should I do? Do you know what I mean? Because if I was in that situation, I, of course I would want everything that I need for the, to, to be able to work. Um, you know, we, we talk about Equality Act and we talk about legislation, but I think we need to start changing the conversation to be more about what should, you know, what do I need to do to get this person back on their feet? Whatever it might be. And fundamentally, the bottom line for a business is if they've got some if somebody is motivated enthused unable to do their job then yeah. that, then that builds the bottom line doesn't it which yeah. um which makes it an investment yeah. rather than rather than a cost yeah yeah so if we would if people need this sort of help where where can they find it because obviously doing this sort of assess work work uh, workplace assessment is not a, a standard workplace assessment. You need, as you've um, very eloquently highlighted, the um, you need a, a specialist to come in and do this. Where where can you? Are you the only company in the UK that does this, or um, where? Yeah, find so out? so we're we're one of the only ones. There are some of the charities that do it as well, and there is um, access to work. Um, so I used to do access to work assessments, but then they wanted us to do everything. So ergonomics, dyslexia, visual impairment, everything. Um, so I come away from that because I was an expert in this area, not mm-hmm. everything else. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to do that. Um, so, you know, you, you, it's, it's, uh, you know, you have a choice at the end of the day, everybody has a choice. You can either go by the, the government scheme or you can go private for an assessment. Um, you know, with the delays in access to work at the moment, six to eight months uh, delay for an assessment is just not really fair on the employee either. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it depends on on your roots of what of how you will do it really. Um, but with access to work, I think people don't realise the difference as well between a private assessment and an access to work assessment. Um, 
which is interesting because people understand the differences between the NHS and the private system. Yeah. You, yeah. you know, um, but, and that's how I would sort of compare it. You know, it's a similar, a similar thing. So the difference is, is with us, you'd get a specialist assessor and someone with lived experience with access to work, you get um, an assessor that is experienced in, in an area, but then also has to do other assessments in areas that they're not necessarily experienced in. Um, the assessment might last half an hour to 45 minutes and you will get a, a report, but it's very focused on the technology. It's not going to focus on your home life and the mental health aspects of everything else that's going on in your, your journey, your hearing loss or sight loss journey. Um, and you, you know, and so that's sort of the differences in, in that. And then obviously the time, time delay as well is a difference. So we can turn it around within about 10 days, an assessment process. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's just gives that people that option. So we're not the only option. There are other options. No, that's, that's really good. And, and thank you for being so, um, I guess, candid with how this is a, um, a process that is really important to go through. Just before Barry gets to the final three, my name's Nick Rome. Let me tell you about this. Technology in our world is evolving at a phenomenal pace. And keeping up with what that means in the human factors world can be challenging. That's where Human Factors Cast comes in. Human Factors Cast is a weekly podcast that highlights and breaks down stories that are chosen by you, the Human Factors community. New York State is giving out hundreds of robots as companions for the elderly. Buttons in cars are safer and quicker to use than touchscreen. A prototype just achieved a major milestone that actually fits the description of a flying car. The show provides perspective based on experiences from different domains and different industries. We even cover some of the hottest conferences in the field. On this episode, we're recapping EHF, Ergonomics and Human Factors Conference, Neuroergonomics Conference, Human Factors and Ergonomics Society, uh, UXPA International. Join me, Nick Rome. And me, Barry Kirby. Every Friday morning when Human Factors Cast drops on YouTube and your favorite podcast directory. And remember, it, it depends. depends. And now I'm going to send it back over to Barry for the final three. Jeremy, do you have a uh, a resource or a book or anything like that that you go back to repeatedly? I suppose a, bu a book. I'm I'm constantly looking at suppliers' catalogs to keep up to date. <laughs> um, new technologies and uh, new softwares, and um, going to conferences to keep up to date with everything that's going on in the ever changing sort of AI world and technology world. Because I do think that that's definitely going to help a lot of people with visual and hearing loss um but for me uh podcasts uh are really good like I really love as a sort of entrepreneur to really be inspired by other entrepreneurs mm -hmm. uh, so I'm really a big fan of Stephen Bartlett's podcasts and um all of his guests that he has on there um and so yeah I like I think like personally I'm not someone that really enjoys reading and that's not because of my visual impairment I just think that's not I'd rather listen to something mm -hmm. yeah. um, and podcasts is sort of my thing so it's definitely Stephen Bartlett I think I I'm very inspired by him as an entrepreneur and also the the content that he puts out and I just love the way he he is as an entrepreneur um and I sort of as a as a person that is um young and mixed race and has a disability and identifies as LGBT. Like I'm ticking all the boxes, you know, 
So, um, <laughs> so I just like, I just really inspired by, by what he's achieved. Brilliant. Um, and I'll try and find a link to that and, and put it into the show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you could go back to younger Dan at, uh, at whatever age you, uh, suits you, but what yeah. advice would you give to you? And I think that was really, really, you know, I really sort of, um, I think, I think one thing that I would say when I was younger actually is to thank my mother for always pushing me and never wrapping me up in cotton wool just because I had a disability. I was always, you know, if I would, if I would um, fall over, I'd always get back up again or, you know, I'd have sort of um, kids maybe knocking off my glasses in the playground. But, you know, I always had broad shoulders and I think that was mm. always my mother because she didn't wrap me up in cotton wool. And that sort of made me who I am today, um, quite robust and quite resilient. Um, but also I think having a disability has allowed me to be resilient and not let people bother me too much. Um, and so, yeah, like, I think um, in in many ways, it's it's allowed me to express myself, be who I am. And, you know, baby, I was born this way. <laughs> Fair enough. Dan, thank you so much for being so open and generous with your insights and knowledge. Um, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, um, how would they go about doing it? Um, so you can contact me at daniel at visualisetrainingandconsultancy.co.uk or www.visualisetrainingandconsultancy.co.uk. That's perfect. I think you're you're also on LinkedIn and, and yeah. things like that as well, aren't you? So, no, that's brilliant. So before we go, uh, don't forget that Ergonomics New Facts is 2023 is at the end of April. Um, more information and tickets can be found at ergonomics.org.uk. And there's a range of topics as well as fascinating keynotes. The first day is a choice of masterclasses, doctoral consortium or the careers fair. And then we get into the conference proper. Um, and the social side is back with this quiz and the annual dinner. And I hope to see some of you there. Thank you all for listening and watching uh, whatever platform and channel you're you're absorbing this through. Uh, please do share your questions and comments through the channel that you're using. And we look forward to seeing you in the next. Thank you for listening to 1202, the Human the Factors, Factors Podcast. Podcast. Please do get in touch with your thoughts, questions, and comments. You can contact us on social media such as Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook at 1202 Podcast. See you next time. And remember, it's more than just common sense.